What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We're fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. We want to give our listeners a heads up right at the very top of this episode that you have just wandered into a serial situation. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> but don't worry, we're not serial killers. There seem to be plenty of other podcasts out there on that topic, if, if that is your fancy. So we're not talking about murders today, but this is a serial episode. Yes, this episode is a part deux, part two, the continuation from our episode last week, Jewelry of Sentiment, The Art of Hair Work. So if you actually haven't already checked out part one, we highly recommend you do so before listening to today's episode. Because in that episode, we really set up the historic context of how and why human hair has historically been considered a treasured keepsake. Human hair was, of course, valued in relation to the wig-making industries for centuries, as it still remains today. But in last week's episode, we spoke about a very specific moment in time— during the 18th century and increasingly into the Victorian era when human hair was traded amongst friends and loved ones and turned into sentimental decorations for the home, such as hair wreaths, and most relevant to our topic today, hair jewelry. So just to clarify, that's jewelry made from human hair, not jewelry to adorn the human head. A curiosity perhaps to us today, the wearing of hair jewelry was actually quite popular for the better part of two centuries, and museum collections across Europe and America have supreme examples of the art of hair work, a craft that until recently I believed had been relegated to the past. Yeah, but as I learned when I started developing my ideas for this particular episode on hair jewelry, this is not entirely the case. And today... We bring you a very fascinating interview with Courtney Lane, who is a modern-day practitioner of this now-obscure art. A very warm welcome from us today, Courtney. Welcome. So, Courtney, thank you so much for agreeing to be with us today on Dressed. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited about this topic today. Um, I would first like to let our listeners know how you and I met uh, briefly, a few weeks ago, and that was in Philadelphia at a symposium that was being produced by the Mütter Museum. And this symposium was in conjunction with their current exhibition, Woven Strands, The Art of Human Hair Work. And I was attending the symposium with great enthusiasm because I actually had already been planning on doing an episode of Dressed on hair jewelry. So it was like kismet. It was perfect timing. Um, and you 
you were there as one of the presenters and you did a really fascinating demonstration of some of the techniques that are used in hair work. It was actually my favorite part of the whole day. And I was like, we have to get her on the show. (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it was so exciting to have a full day just dedicated to hair. Because that's just not something you get very often. No, no. And, and one of the things that actually struck me about the symposium was, was um, first of all, it was very well attended. Um, but also, it was the demographic of the audience. Um, and it was really across the spectrum. But there were many, many people there who were in their 20s and in their 30s. And I think this kind of speaks to the the quasi like cult like following that this subject has. Like if you're into it, you're probably really into it. <laughs> That's very very true. Yeah. Um, so my first question for you is a two parter, I guess. Um, first of all, would you be so kind to tell us about your very first encounter with hair work? And secondly, what was the path that eventually led to you doing this professionally? Well, I do wish that I had this really amazing story of the very first time I encountered a hair wreath. A lot of my friends who are antique dealers or collectors have that very first encounter story, but mine was a little bit different because I guess I got started in this this realm of interest really quite young. So by the time I encountered hair work, it wasn't a new exciting revelation for me. I actually always liked to start back when I was about five or six years old. I took a trip with my family to New Orleans and my grandmother had taken me to the above ground cemeteries to see all the mausoleums around the French Quarter. And at that young age, it just made sense to me. I thought that (laughs) monuments were beautiful. I thought the atmosphere was beautiful. I understood that there were dead people memorialized in there. And I thought, yes, of course we should memorialize our dead like this. This is gorgeous. And, And so that really got me interested in the aesthetic the morning customs and and just this this ritual mm-hmm. and and so from that young age that's what i had in my mind so i did a lot of reading i had a lot of interest in morning customs and i of course landed very quickly on victorian morning customs and then of course i learned about hair jewelry and it just all clicked and it all made sense so i don't have this moment of learning that hair was used in this way for jewelry and art because it it was just kind of the realm I already existed in. You were born for it. (laughs) Uh, Some may say yes. So I don't have that really amazing story, but uh, it was just sort of this long process to get me here to doing this as my profession because I had the interest and I'd always been artistic. I, I grew up dancing. I was a dancer my entire life and I made artwork. I loved art and, and I loved the more weird, morbid side of history. So those have always been my great loves. And at the time I decided to do hair work professionally, I'd been studying it for many years. So I was immersed in the history right from the get go. 
And I kind of decided, you know, I want to learn how to do this if I can. I wasn't sure if it was going to be possible. And so I, I did a lot of exploring. I figured out how to do it. And to my astonishment, I was good at it. I, I could actually do it, which was amazing for me because I don't even style the hair on my own head. <laughs> I, I, I have no patience for the hair on heads. So I thought I'd learn how to do it and then be satisfied that I knew how. But I liked it. I was good at it. I owned an insurance agency at the time, which was way more boring than hair. So I I quit the insurance game and, and did hair full time, even though I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to make it work because it's been more or less a dead industry for nearly 100 years. Yeah. So and you touched you you touched very briefly on this uh, t- talking about learning how to do this. Um, I guess my question is, how did you learn these techniques? Of which there are several, and I'm sure we will get to that in a little bit. Um, I mean, I know that there are how-to manuals from the 1870s, um, most notably Alexana Spite's book, which is called *The Lock of Hair* from 1871, and then there's also Mark Campbell's book *The Art of Hair Work* from 1875. Um, but did these manuals play a role in your study or did you learn from someone or someplace else? They did play a role. They did. I, it was really a journey to figuring out this big puzzle in my head that was hair work techniques. In my studying of the history and the Victorian culture, I came across those books. So I did use the lock of hair to learn uh, one technique and I used Mark Campbell's book to learn another technique. But what I was really seeking after at the time was how to do the hair wreaths, the big elaborate three-dimensional flowers. That was kind of my first hair work love were those wreaths. So that was the one thing that I just couldn't find any manuals on. So learning how to do the remainder of the techniques was really studying the old pieces. I would occasionally have the opportunity to find a damaged wreath, one that has been out of the frame and is frayed and breaking and being able to actually touch it and take it apart and try to put it back together. It's almost like you're reverse engineering it. That and also because some wreaths you see are constructed a little differently than others. So it was also a matter of finding and talking to a lot of lifelong collectors of hair. Leila Cohoon of the uh, Hair Museum here in Independence, Missouri, I, I spoke to her at length about what she sort of thought. And and even though not everything there made sense, I went and talked to another collector and, and they gave me a little more insight. So it was it was piecing together a lot of things from a lot of different people in a lot of different places. And then trial and error. Yeah sitting down it and and trying it and seeing what works best. And and even going back to the other two books, The Lock of Hair and the Mark Campbell book, reading those isn't quite enough to know exactly what you're doing. And that is because those books use archaic English, but they also use tools that aren't readily accessible anymore. So it was reading them, combing through them several times, and then trying to find 
modern equivalents of the tools that they were using and and still trying to figure out a modern way to do this old art. So it it was a lot of historian work, a lot of trial and error, and and it it was very much a journey, a lot of time spent piecing it all together in my head. <sighs> Um, so you, you have, as we've touched on, you do do this professionally. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your business, which is called Never Forgotten? Um, what type of work do you do and who are your clients? Yeah, well, I do in my business, Never Forgotten. I have a couple different branches of what I do. One branch is the art itself and the other branch is the education. So on top of educating about the history behind hair work, I also teach the techniques because it was so difficult for me to figure out how to do all of it that I would like it to be more accessible to people who want to learn. Because as you mentioned earlier, there is a cult following. There is a very dedicated group of people that would love easy access to this information. So, so that's the first leg is the education. But from the art side of it, I do occasionally find Victorian era hair that was never used for art or jewelry. It would be a ponytail or a braid or a couple locks of hair that you'll find in a dusty box in an attic at estate sales. And I'll take that old hair and make new pieces. And, and I can sell those pre-made and there's still a bit of the history there because the hair is antique and I'm taking it and turning it into the art or the jewelry that I would like to think it was always meant to be. And then I do the custom work and that is the bread and butter of my business. That is when my clients are sending me their hair or the hair of their loved ones to make something sentimental for them. What is your customer base like? I I'm guessing it's largely women? Well, it, it it's more diverse than you might think, because I have had, especially early on, I was really trying to educate in my advertising, because most people have never heard of hair work before. So I had to sort of explain to people why they might want this service of mine. And at first I was really pressing the romantic side of it, the romantic gestures. Mm -hmm. And, and there were a lot of men that thought, yes, this is something that is romantic and unique and I can do this for my partner. So I did have a lot of men bringing me little teeny tiny snips of hair to make a little locket for the special people in their life. But I really get across the spectrum. I get memorial pieces to commemorate a deceased loved one. I get mothers uh, commissioning me to make things out of their baby's first haircut. And I've even recently been doing a lot of uh, pet memorials. A lot of people are bringing me their dog or their cat's fur uh, to make something to commemorate those special people in our life, too. Oh, I love that. That's so sweet. <laughs> I wish Gigi had long hair that I could send you, but she doesn't. Well, you don't need long hair for all the techniques. Oh, that's I right. work with Chihuahua fur, so very short, very fine. So speaking of techniques, uh, my understanding is that there are four major techniques that are used in hair work. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about each and also why one technique would be used versus another 
in terms of the objects that are being made because hair work was not just only used for jewelry. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I will uh, uh, reference the manuals to explain which technique they sort of cover. So the lock of hair that you mentioned uh, by Alexana Spite covers the palette work, and that is flat pictures. This could be done to be a framed picture, or it could be done to be put in a locket or in a brooch, that jewelry. And that is going to be just flat pictures. If you can picture just hair being glued flat and then cut into a very, very intricate shape or pattern. Now the Mark Campbell book talks about table work and table work gets its name because it is a very elaborate braid that is done on a round table with a hole through the middle. And what they would do is take the hair into individual strands. They would attach them to weighted bobbins. And through the center of this hole, they would put a dowel or a knitting needle to braid around. And on this round table, they would do this very elaborate braiding pattern. And that would be table braiding. And that would be something that would most often be used for the wearable jewelry that the hair actually functions as a chain. So if you can imagine the hair being the chain of your necklace, or it is the watch chain that you hold your pocket watch on, it was sturdy, it was functional, it was entirely made of hair. And then we have the hair wreaths which is wire work. And that is the hair being woven together with wire, being wrapped together, occasionally using a knitting needle to keep its shape. And you would just use the hair and the wire to craft your flowers. And the flowers would then be wrapped together to make the wreath. And then the final main technique is one that is probably least talked about in texts. So you may hear it by different names, depending on who you speak to. You may hear it referred to as macerated hair or dissolved hair, or it may just be referenced as sepia. And this is where the hair is softened, it's cut very fine, it's mixed together to create a sort of paint. So the hair would be the pigment and you would paint a portrait miniature using this hair paint. So many call it sepia because it has the very, usually brunette, brown, varying shades. It's not colorful because the hair itself is the color. So we have our palette work, our table work, our wire work, and our sepia, which are our four core techniques. Um, and it was wire work that you um, were demonstrating for us at the symposium the other day. It was it was really amazing. <laughs> and we're going to find out more after this sponsor break. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm-hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. 
And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So this practice of making hair work, um, it was both a parlor craft or, or a folk art, some people call it that as well, that women practiced at home. Um, but also there was a, an entire professional industry that existed um, outside the domestic sphere. So how and why did these two ways of creating hair work exist simultaneously? Well, and that answer is a little bit different depending on if you're looking at Europe versus America. Hair work was popular in both places during this time. And for, for the sake of this question, I'll start with America. So this was where you were seeing a majority of your hair wreaths and a majority of women making this craft in the home. But then they would start getting word that over in Europe, it's becoming very, very fashionable to wear the hair jewelry. And I would say... At first, a majority of the women in America didn't know how to do the jewelry itself. And so some would be able to learn using guides and manuals, but there was also starting to be seen the fact that there is a demand for this. It's not just 
a sentimental thing for your own loved one's hair anymore. It is fashionable to wear hair jewelry. So at that point that it surpassed only being sentimental, all the businesses started saying, hmm, this is something that I can do too. And there were a couple of levels to the industry. There were some amazing women who were independent hair work artists and would occasionally partner with a metalsmith, a jeweler, and together they would put out hair jewelry as a product. So you could commission them using your own hair and they would make the hair work and send it back to you. And a lot of this was done mail order because of course they didn't have the internet. They didn't just call up the shop. So you would have business cards for women that say, mail me this hair, tell me what pattern you want, I'll make it and send it back. Yeah, and at the back, I think it's of Mark Campbell's book, uh, there's actually some ads for these types of services that you're mentioning. And also um, they would publish, it's almost like a catalog. Like they would say, which design do you want? You just let us know. It's really fascinating. Absolutely, that did happen as well. And, and that also translated to even larger business. So my my favorite example of this, because it's still a brand that we recognize today, is Sears. Sears Roebuck began as a catalog, and near the end of the 1800s, they started advertising mail-order hair work. Wow. So that is my, my favorite example, because we all know Sears. We all know that they're struggling a little bit today, but we know them as the big department store. But they started as a catalog and they started in the Victorian era, even doing hair jewelry. That's amazing. I love that contemporary connection. We like making those connections on Dressed. So was there any kind of hierarchy that existed between personally versus professionally made examples of hair work? Was one valued over the other? Again, that depends. So if if we're talking strictly sentimental hair work, then no, it doesn't matter because the idea behind sentimental hair work is that it is a part of your loved one that you can keep forever. So if it's your loved one's hair, it doesn't matter if it's an amateur piece or if someone professionally made it because the power is in the hair. It's not necessarily in the aesthetic or the design. Mm. But of course, as I mentioned, it became fashionable. So there was, at a certain point specifically, um, or especially in Europe, for the professionally made hair work done by ordinarily independent women who were very, very skilled, who knew many hair work techniques, who were, for at least a while, very well trusted to take your hair, make it, send it back to you. It changed, however, and and Sears is partially to blame for this, that people stopped trusting made-to-order hair work because in one of those Sears catalogs, after they had already been advertising hair work and hair jewelry, they put out a disclaimer stating that 
Sears doesn't do this hair work in-house. They send it out to be done, so they can't completely confirm that you're getting the right hair back. Uh-oh. <laughs> exactly. So so that, of course, gave people a bit of a panic and, and started to stigmatize the industry and the professionally made hair work. So there was almost this uh, curve in amateur versus professional work. It, it very much started in popularity in the home. Then professional hair workers were well-trusted and did amazing work. Then people stopped trusting them a little bit and, and wanted to go back to the DIY, do it yourself, do it right, make sure it's your own hair. So it, it did sort of fluctuate. Mm. This did not come up at the symposium, but I'm fascinated by this. Next question. I think it was in Mark Campbell's book. It was definitely in one of the primary sources that I read in preparation to, to speak with you. But one of the primary sources, they talk about hair color and that in particular hair jewelry made from white hair was especially prized. So can we just talk a little bit about hair color and, and if there were, you know, preferential colors or was this more again back to the point about it being from your loved one sure and and i i do know what you are speaking about i i do believe it is the mark campbell book where this is referenced and the the white hair being especially prized is i believe less about aesthetic than it is about cost Mm. And and as far as hair being an industry, as far as people buying hair to make hair jewelry, it was very similar to the wig industry or the hairpiece industry. You could buy hair and buying hair. It was easy to buy brunette hair. There was a lot of that to go around. You could go buy brown hair for a, a relatively reasonable price. But the other hair colors that were harder to come by were going to be more expensive. Mm. So as, as far as white hair is concerned, if I am someone who is preparing a head of white hair to sell to a wig maker or someone who makes hair jewelry, I'm not just going to take the head of hair and sell it to you as a ponytail. To get that white hair, you'll actually need to pick out all of the gray hairs. And if, if you take a look at white hair, it isn't purely white. There are lots of gray hairs strewn about it. So to get the very pure, very perfect white color, it's quite labor intensive just to prepare the hair by taking out the darker colors and just getting all of those white hairs of the same shade together. So not only were they not getting it as often, but they had to do a lot more to prepare it before they'd sell it to you. So if you were trying to get a white wig or white hair jewelry that was just made with anybody's hair from a professional hair worker, that was going to be the most expensive option. So that would have been not sentimental, but that would have been purely a status symbol at that point. Oh, that's so fascinating. Um and that brings up another point, which is that clearly genetic makeup of a given population is going to be evidenced in the hair work that that culture made or continues to make. And one of the other presenters at the symposium, Karen Bachman, who's also a contemporary creator of hair work like yourself, she talked about um, the history of hair work 
as a cottage industry in Sweden. This was brand new information for me. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the relationship of hair work and Sweden? Oh, absolutely. And this is a wonderful topic. And in the world of hair, I I fully agree with Karen that it is not discussed enough because it is fascinating. So she specifically in her talk referenced a small a region in Sweden known as Vamhus. And Vamhus is the most rural of the rural Sweden. It's in the middle of nowhere, very low population. And it's a cluster of 13 villages that are just sort of in a big open field. And Vamhus was known in the 1800s as a very entrepreneurial community, a very rural and modest community, but very, very skilled workers. And around the 1830s, the industry started expanding because prior to the 1830s in Vamhus, you were a farmer or you were a forester. But around the 1830s, they started becoming craftspeople as well. So primarily, the men would become basket weavers, and the women would become hair workers. And the women especially are so fascinating to me because women from a very rural area, they were normally the wives of farmers, very modest people, but they were really wonderful businesswomen. And in the Victorian era, you don't hear a lot about businesswomen. Right. They would, for most of the year, be their farm wives. They would help with the harvest. Once the harvest was brought in, they would pack up their baskets with some samples of their hair work and all the tools they need, and then they would go travel. And they didn't just travel into Stockholm. They traveled out of Sweden. They traveled to Russia. They traveled to England. They traveled all over. And they would go and they would knock on doors and they would explain that they are hair workers from Bamhus. And they would spend part of their year just doing this and getting orders that way. And these women were even taught very key sales phrases for the countries they were visiting. Because one really interesting fact about Vamhus, they spoke a very regional dialect. So even learning proper Swedish was like a second language to them. So they would learn Swedish or they would learn Russian or English enough to travel and do their work. Wow. And they they would uh, send home the, I believe the currency at the time for them was Rix dollars. And they would send home their Rix dollars. And these women could make even up to 2,000 Rix dollars doing this hair work for part of the year, which at the time, to put in perspective, the average annual salary was 50 Rix dollars for the province they came from. So they were making good money doing this. And by the 1850s, so by the, this time, they've only been traveling regularly for about 20 years. They even had English business cards. They had a reputation for being very skilled workers, very well trusted. There is even some documentation to prove that some of these women may have uh, 
made hair work jewelry specifically for Queen Victoria herself. So some of these women would come to these doors with their samples and also official papers from the court that are signed saying that she is a trusted supplier to Queen Victoria. So they did gain a reputation. So people knew the hair workers from Vamhus. Some of them would even set up shops in England if they felt that they wanted to move. And this became the habit up until the early 1900s, up until 1914, 1915, when they stopped traveling quite as much to do this. And they did still continue doing this hair work, these women, but around, say, the 1950s, there were very few people even still in their village doing this. So there was a push to sort of get this modern revival back into Vamhus so that these women could still carry on their tradition of being skilled hair workers. And that's exactly what happened. There was actually an American-born citizen named Joanna Svensson who uh, helped to teach a lot of the young women in Vamhus this craft. And it is still practiced to this day there. That's so fascinating. I love this. Um, We're going to take a brief break to hear a word from our sponsors, but more with Courtney when we come back. So do you have any great stories about specific pieces that you've made? And what are some of the challenges that you find you face consistently in your own work? That's a very good question. I'm I'm trying to think if if there's one specific piece that really stands out to me that I've made but uh, unfortunately I don't think there is. I think that all of the pieces I make especially the custom pieces are very very special in their own ways because if it is memorializing a deceased loved one Oftentimes, my clients will tell me about that person, and uh, it it really feels like I'm I'm doing this really special connection to the person I'm memorializing, even if it's not someone I've met. And just being able to provide that for people is is really really special. So I would say that those are the pieces that really, really impact me. I, of course, love doing the baby's first haircut pieces. I, of course, love providing someone a unique romantic token to give to their loved one. But there's something far more finite about the memorial tokens that that really, really sticks with me because I feel very honored to be able to provide this last token of this person for their loved ones to keep and remember them by. And those are often the clients that talk to me more. They tell me about the person. They tell me why they want to memorialize them. They they tell me what the significance is of the picture that I'm making for them. And you don't always get that if it's if it's, you know, baby's first haircut. Then it'll just be this is my baby's first haircut. I'd like a piece, please. So I I feel like I get more of an emotional connection to my clients when when it is a memorial token. And those are the really special ones. 
and and even if that's for pets, I, I get a lot of people who will send me several pictures of their dog <laughs> and I'll get many pictures of this dog along with their fur. And as an animal lover and as someone who has pets myself, that that can be just as impactful as our human relatives. And, and so those are the ones that really, really sit with me. Now, as far as challenges, Sometimes the biggest challenge lies in not necessarily how much hair I have, but explaining to my clients who are unfamiliar with hair work what I can do with the amount of hair they provide me. There have been some instances where I get a very small amount of hair and they're expecting to get the three-dimensional flowers. But with only about an inch of hair, I need a little more length to do the three-dimensional pieces. So I always say that I can work with any length of hair, but the amount of hair you provide me will dictate what I can do. So a lot of times it's not up to me, it's up to the hair. And as long as the people coming to me with this hair are open to new ideas as long as they're okay with, okay, this is a short amount of hair, so it's going to be a flat picture. Then that is the biggest hurdle right there is just sometimes getting people over the idea of what they hope they're going to get back. Right. Managing expectations, I would guess. You know, your medium dictates your work, you know, just like any artist. <laughs> Absolutely. So so that's a big part of it, managing expectations. And, and since you say managing expectations, sometimes even just amount of time. I, I have had people bring me a ponytail of hair and say, I want this done in two weeks. I want it back in my hand in two weeks because I'm giving this as a birthday present. That's really tricky. <laughs> Some, some of the work I do is very time intensive mm -hmm. and chances are if, if you're bringing me your hair and commissioning a piece, chances are I'm already working on someone else's piece and I have two or three more that are in line after that. So if you have a very specific date you need it by, don't wait till the last minute because I am only one person and some of these can be time intensive. What would you say, let's say a, like a small piece of jewelry, for instance, done with table work. So let's say a bracelet. Um, what would a turnaround, like how long does that take for you to create? Ooh, let's see. So if you're saying a bracelet, do you mean specifically the uh, braided hair where the bracelet is the, or the hair is the chain? Yes. Uh, that, oh, hmm. Honestly, that one's hard to say because, and I'll, I'll tell you why, with the table braiding especially, that is one of the techniques that takes more preparation than some of the other techniques. That is one where I'm taking all the strands and I'm counting out all the hairs individually. So if I want 20 hairs in a strand, I'm counting those 20 hairs out and then I'm doing that 20 more times mm -hmm. and I'm making sure that also the hair is all the same length and then I'm fastening it to the bobbins and then I'm doing the work. So depending on the state of the hair, when I get it, if it's a nice ponytail and everything's all the same length, it won't take nearly as long. 
but if you give me a bag of loose hair, that's gonna take way more time just to separate all the hairs out than it is to even do the braiding itself. Right. But that would be, so say, a few hours for counting out all the hairs if, if I'm doing a braid with many strands. And then maybe an hour of actually fastening them to the bobbins and getting my table set up. And then a couple hours of braiding. Hmm. And then I would take the braided product and it would be boiled and it would be baked. And then then we would assemble it into whatever uh, jewelry findings to get the actual metal clasp and such. Will you elaborate for our dress listeners a little bit about why the hair would be boiled and then baked? Absolutely. That was mostly to uh, be able to shape it properly and to toughen it up a little bit. So if you encounter even an antique braided hair jewelry piece, not everyone knows that it's hair. It doesn't necessarily look like hair. It kind of just looks like brown cord or thread. And even if you touch it, it doesn't necessarily feel like hair because it's a little bit stiff. And so being able to boil the hair, stiffens it up a little bit, baking the hair takes the moisture back out of it. And within that process, you can go ahead and if you want it a little more elastic with a little more give to it, you can string the elastic through it easily. You can shape it into a nice round shape so it's easy to clasp if it's a bracelet. And so it makes shaping easier. It, it, it makes it a little bit stiff too. So it's, it's easily wearable and very strong and durable. Yeah. And, and, and hair is incredibly strong, incredibly strong. It really is. Yeah. So I'm sure you have run into my next question a million times. Um, but how do you engage with some people's reaction um, that using hair as a medium feels unhygienic to them? Well, honestly, it depends on the individual person and to what level they have that stigma. Right. An aversion. (laughs) Some people are so freaked out by hair that it's going to be nearly impossible to convince them that, hey, this isn't gross. It's not unhygienic. It's it's a beautiful thing. Some people are so ingrained in that mindset that they can't quite get over it. And sometimes the people that have this aversion to hair surprise me. I've been showing my artwork at some, you know, oddity shows. Hair jewelry these days is kind of an oddity. A lot of people haven't heard of it. A lot of people don't understand why we might use it. So my work fits in pretty well there. But I have literally seen tall bearded, tattooed, tough looking guy go to a table next to me and hold up a wet specimen and say, oh, look, cycloptic fetal pig in a jar. How cool. And then come over to my table and look at things. And then I'll say, that's made out of human hair. And then he will drop it (laughs) and back away. And, and and just rave about how terrible and disgusting and weird this is. And it's like, come on, really? <laughs> so some people who are averse are really, really averse. Some people who just maybe have that notion and have the knee-jerk reaction of this is weird, this is gross, 
can be swayed by actually just talking about the history behind it, but then relating it to themselves. I, I normally like to give a very vague overview of the history and explain that in the Victorian era with the uh, development and acceptance of germ theory, the Victorians also started getting this stigma against hair once they started understanding that germs were around but didn't necessarily know how they were transmitted and how they were making them sick. They also started seeing the body as an unhygienic thing. And that is one of the many reasons why hair work started to die out. And so being able to give that history and that overview, but then also saying, well, did your parents keep your first haircut? A majority of people say yes. And if you ask them if they think that's gross, a majority of people will say no. So it's finding that common ground mm -hmm. because saving hair is more a part of our culture today than a lot of people realize. Yeah. I, I absolutely, I can, I'm thinking back, my mom has a locket with my hair in it, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, a majority of people do, but they, they cut their children's hair and it goes in an envelope or it goes in a baby book or a box where they hardly ever see it. So we're still saving hair of our loved ones. We're just not making the art and the jewelry in the way that we used to. So I'm sure some of our listeners have become quite fascinated um, and there might be some budding hair work artists out there among you. Um, what advice do you have for someone who might be interested in taking up learning? And what kind of tools um, or investments would they need? Well, I would recommend that they find a hair work artist who is already doing it. <laughs> Find someone like me or find someone like Karen Bachman. Find someone who already knows the art because I don't recommend to anybody going through the long drawn out puzzle process that I went through because now there are a few of us that are out there teaching it. So I know that up in the New York area, Karen teaches classes occasionally. Here in the Kansas City area, I teach classes occasionally. And uh, I've often even traveled to give classes. But I understand that there are still a lot of people that are maybe in a small area where it doesn't make sense to me to travel to teach a full class to. So I've set up a couple of options since one of my main goals is to make this more accessible. So I have set up both a starter kit for someone who just wants a simple introduction to hair work where you can learn the basic wire work hair flowers to make a wreath. And this kit has the hair you need to practice with both human and horse hair. It has the knitting needles, the wire, it has written instructions and thread, everything you need to get started. So that is the, to my knowledge, the simplest easy entrance because you can buy the kit and you have everything right in front of you. Now that's just more for someone who maybe wants to casually learn. It's not going to teach you everything. So if you do want to know everything, I do recommend a face-to-face -face class with someone who is a hair work teacher, or I have also started doing online hair tutorials on my Patreon page where every month I'm doing a new technique 
And to my supporters on Patreon, they can see those videos, see me doing the artwork, and then they can follow along at home and and get their own tools as they please. And touching on that, before I forget, before I get off topic, how can people find you? Absolutely. My website is neverforgottencl.com. That's CL, like my initials, Courtney Lane. And that is also my Instagram handle, neverforgottencl. On Facebook, you can find me at Never Forgotten by Courtney Lane. Twitter is Never Forget CL, because apparently Never Forgotten CL didn't work on there. <laughs> but um, on, on Patreon, you can find me at just Never Forgotten. And for anybody who's maybe interested in just more of the history, but not necessarily learning the artwork, I do put out free videos on YouTube that just talk about some of the fun, weird, quirky history of hair work. And that can be found on YouTube at Hair and Now. Oh, I love that. Oh, always a good pun. Lots of puns, lots of hair puns. (laughs) Um, so we are just about out of time today, unfortunately, but before we sign off, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think, or perhaps even hope that the future of this art form will be? Well, I certainly don't see hair work as an industry becoming as popular as it once was. And I don't necessarily think it needs to be this this big business anymore, but I do hope that it can be reintroduced as a normal part of culture. Because right now, it's a very fringe thing. It's Mm -hmm. something that a lot of people see weird, some people still see as gross. So I hope through education, we can utilize just the power and the sentiment of hair because it's very powerful if your loved one's deceased and you can still have their hair to hold on to. It's also very powerful if you're in a long distance relationship and you have the hair of your loved one next to you. So I think that hair has this power to be an emotional thing for us. It can help us have a physical token of our complicated emotions. So I think it very much does have a place in our modern society. It just needs to be somewhat destigmatized, but a lot of education so people know where it's coming from, the history behind it. And hopefully we can make it very easily accessible for people to learn it if they want to make their own hair jewelry and hair art. And you're there. You're the one. You're the one doing it. I'm trying. I'm trying so hard. (laughs) Courtney, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so, so much uh, for joining us today on Dressed. And please don't be surprised if you receive an envelope of Gigi hair sometime (laughs) in the near future. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much again. It was a pleasure. Yes. Thank you so much. Wow. The fact that Courtney unearthed all of these techniques from the past and taught herself how to do this is really remarkable. She is truly an artist. Just when you think that we go to all sorts of bizarre lengths and unearth new research on the history of fashion, you meet fellow enthusiasts who are so inspirational. Yeah, I got up at 4 a.m. on a Sunday uh, to get to Philadelphia to attend that symposium where I met Courtney. And I was like, oh, wow, I won an award for dragging myself to Philly all the way (laughs) in the pitch black winter morning. This was a few months ago. Yes, uh, Charles Worth Haute Couture Gown to April. 
Oh, is that my prize? That is your prize. <laughs> we love our fashion fantasy history rewards. Um, but that now, I guess that now gives me 10 cashmere shawls and a worth gown. <laughs> That's what I've won now. Yeah. You're going to have to figure out what your game is. Yeah, I know. I, have, I haven't won any fashion history prizes yet. You will. I'm sure. I'm positive. <laughs> um, I'm going to stop congratulating myself about my trip to Philly. Um, you know, I might have devoted myself to this particular topic for a couple of weeks, but Courtney and a handful of others like her, they have really devoted their lives um, to hair work. It's, it's really their great passion. And we also love what we do. So thank you, Dress listeners, for being such a big part of that. And that's all for us this week. Until next time, perhaps you will ponder where your passion lies next time you get dressed. Please follow us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast for images that accompany each week's episode. This is also our Twitter handle. And on Facebook, you can find us at dressed podcast without the underscore. You can write to us at dressed at howstuffworks.com And also check out additional readings for each show on our website, www.dressedpodcast.com. And thank you to our producers, Holly Fry and Casey Pegram, and everyone else at How Stuff Works who helps make Dress possible each week. Catch you soon. Bye.